Hey, and welcome to Cream of Caroline, America's most beloved casserole lifestyle podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Hatchett. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Thomas, a sommelier and the visionary behind Kalamata's Kitchen, a book series and brand that takes kids and families on cool food adventures. In addition to books and wine, we'll also discuss how much words matter and how they're weaponized, especially in today's political climate. This conversation isn't the lightest we've had, it's heavy cream, but I thought we could all learn from listening to Sarah about her experiences as an American born to immigrant parents. We also obviously have lunch prepared and ready in the oven, and Matt Rinskers is back for his sophomore edition of Casserole Reviews. Thank you for joining us, it's gonna be creamy. What's in the oven? Today it is curried chicken and pepper cups, found on page 40 of the Better Homes and Gardens Casserole Cookbook. You're gonna combine cooked diced chicken, cooked rice, celery, onion, and pimento with about a cup of mayonnaise. Accent that with one to two teaspoons curry powder, black pepper, and salt. From there, you're gonna remove the tops of bell peppers, stuff the chicken mixture inside those bell peppers, and bake until hot at 350 degrees for 30 to 45 minutes. Remove them from the oven, and for extra flair, top them with pimento crosses before serving. That's what's in the oven. Casseroles and the news. Catalina's restaurant in Columbus, Ohio received a favorable review from Alive, a local outlet. Reviewer G.A. Benton called out the restaurant's chili relleno casserole a go-go. Benton writes, the inhalable casserole conceals a roasted poblano stuffed with pimento cheese beneath simpatico partners. Corn studded in coarse crumbled cornbread, ranchero sauce, Snowville creamery crema, cilantro, and spiced pepitas. It sounds like a four-star experience to us. Naomi Watts may be Australian, but that's a thin excuse. While playing the whisper game on Jimmy Fallon, Watts revealed that she had never heard of tuna noodle casserole. I quote Watts, I don't even know what that is. It sounds awful. Well, Naomi, I didn't know that you played Gretchen Carlson in the 2019 miniseries, The Loudest Voice, and that happened this year. Tuna noodle casserole has been around a lot longer than that, and it just might outlive your acting career. Finally, local and federal authorities in Denver recently captured and killed 1,662 Canadian geese that were taking up residence in Denver parks. The goal? Shrink the population and help feed those in need. The goose meat was distributed to nonprofits and anti-hunger organizations, but the public was not convinced. To entice residents to give the goose a shot, Metro Caring's Rob Russell made Park Goose Breakfast Casserole, Cottage Pie, Chili, and Boboti, a South African curry casserole topped with egg custard. That's your casseroles in the news. All right, cream guests, we have with us this afternoon Sarah Thomas. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Sarah is an advanced mollier uh, who works at La Bernadette in New York City, and she is also the author and creative force behind Kalamata's Kitchen, a children's book series that chronicles the food adventures of Kalamata and her allegations alligator sidekick that's right what's his al dente his name is al dente okay he's a silly guy um how 
why an alligator as a sidekick? Why not? Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to Al Dente in a little while. And I do want to, I want to start with your childhood. Sure. Um, where did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Yes, I grew up in Somerset, Pennsylvania, which is in pretty rural Western Pennsylvania. Okay. And what kinds of foods did you grow up eating? Well, my parents are both Indian immigrants. Okay. Um, I was born in Somerset, but I my, my parents are both from India, um, from Kerala in the south. Okay. And so my food was straight up Indian food. Okay. Like my mom, my mom, my mom is very um, experimental. As we, especially when we got older, I remember her like always reading cookbooks and like making different things. Which I only realized later, like, definitely all had an Indian spin on them. Yeah. Um, but mostly, like, mostly our meals were South Indian food. Okay. And do you, I assume your mom didn't make casseroles. Uh, <laughs> I, maybe she did. No. She did not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she did not. What was your, do you remember an experience where someone, like, as a kid presented it to you and you're like, what the... Yeah, I do actually. It's pretty vivid. Okay. Um, so like our food's very spicy. Um, I grew up just like expecting an extremity of flavor all the time. Um, and like what, I mean, and it's not always like heat from chilies, right? Like there's so many layers of flavor in South Indian food. And I, w- I just got used to that. I like my taste buds just being pummeled and I loved it. And then I remember one of the first times I ever went to stay at a friend's house my mom was like, okay, anything that they serve you, you know, you have to be polite. You have to eat everything on your plate, just like you do at home. I was like, sure, of course. And I was like so excited because I didn't like know what kind of food I was going to yeah. get. And, um, it was a tuna something casserole. Okay. I never encountered <laughs> such a thing before. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not say that I enjoyed it, but I did eat all of it. And, uh, I came home and I asked my mom what it was because I didn't feel like it was polite to ask my friend's mom. <laughs> and my mom was like, I don't really know, but... But good job. But good job. <laughs> yeah. But you weren't like, you didn't go home and beg her to start making tuna noodle casserole. I, tuna noodle, that's what it was. But, yeah. Uh, no. So, and did you like, did you bring food to school that was like South Indian too? I did for a little while. Um, my mom always packed our lunches because she didn't, I don't think she ever trusted the school lunches. Um, yeah. And again, in hindsight, I have like, I've only really realized as an adult how absolutely lucky I was. My mom cooks different food every night um, for every meal. She's an amazing cook. Um, and yeah, she would send us food and like the thing about Indian food is that it, like, like I said, it all of your senses so like you'd open it up and the smell a smell that I thought was delicious would just drive kids away (laughs) and I was like okay closing that back up someone want to trade me for a Slim Jim you know like just the worst decisions you could possibly make and you know I am ashamed to say now that a lot of that food probably ended up in the trash can because I couldn't bring it home right and uh, nobody wanted to trade for it so, yeah, it was, it's a shame in hindsight because I'm like, I would give anything to eat that stuff right now. Right, and the food that you love so much made you feel like a little bit like an outsider, a lot like yeah, an outsider. a lot like an outsider. Okay, yeah. which, is, um, which is a theme this week in, in the world uh, yeah. as we are, you know, we've listened to our, our dear leader, President Trump, um, use a phrase, uh, go, go back to where you come from. 
So, and that's you know part of why I wanted to have a conversation with you today is you have had a very like guttural and raw emotional reaction to that statement. As a as a very you know as a very successful woman of color who's like has a million projects and is confident, uh, but it still was very it was very painful for you. It was, and you know, I it's it's one of those things that really it bothers me for so many reasons. Maybe the most superficial one is that I was frustrated that despite the fact that I do have so much going on and I'm really busy and I don't have time to like just go into a deep dark spiral, I did anyway when I heard that. And and it's hard sometimes not to feel hopeless um, when you hear things like that, especially things that, um, you know, when I heard it as a kid, I was taught to laugh it off. You know, I was, I remember my mom telling me that um, anyone who said that, you know, it's likely that they didn't really know what they were saying. It's likely that they would grow out of it. And if they didn't, then, you know, you're probably never going to see them again and they're not going to matter because it's just a few people in a small corner of the world. And it's not like everyone in my town was like that, you know? So she, so she really tried to like play it off and I really believed her. And then so, you know, to feel like you're, you're going to grow up and someday like these things aren't going to matter anymore. You, it, it builds a sort of, a sort of like, it's a defense mechanism, right? It's a, it's an armor building. Um, and then, you know, when you get older and you realize that those sentiments have not, in fact, gone away and people have not, in fact, grown out of them, if anything, they've become more violently obvious and out in the open in the last few years, um, it just really hurts. And then, you know, to know that it's, it's not just a few people in a small pocket of the world, it's the president of the United States um, and the people who support him saying those words, being given platforms to say that message as though is at, it's true and important, um, it's, it's hard. It's, it feels very like, it feels like very, um, I don't know, it's, it, it just feels like you're kind of just like everything's being ripped off. Any like armor right. or, or structure you've built to like as a survival mechanism just kind of disappears. And you've built that armor, right? And then there's there's a lot of fragility right now of for for, for yeah. people who have not uh, had to build build that armor. Yeah, um, I mean, I consider myself in the, in the white community is what I'm saying. So it's like you've worked so hard forever, and and you're still coming. You know, feel like you're under attack. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, and it's funny because I find. It's not funny, but I use the word funny. It's right. funny sometimes. That's a defense how, like, mechanism also. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, things are, things, I have to see them as funny sometimes, like, in order to think about them, because it's, it's obviously darkly funny to, like, be like, oh, my God, people are just realizing. Like, I have spent years building up an armor, and I, I feel like I'm very patient um, with a lot of people who have views that are not the same as mine, because I, I come from a position of wanting to meet people where they are and believing that the only way they're going to change their perspective on things is if I'm gentle and kind of the way that I, I, that I introduce myself and my culture and my perspective to them. Um, and so what's funny sometimes is like when I have these moments of like utter breakdown and then I see my, some of my friends have them too, it's almost like they've just realized right. that this is a problem and their reactions are also very raw and visceral and paradigm shifting, but it's because it's it's suddenly occurred to them that this occurs. Whereas for me, it's just like tearing a scab off. And for them, it's like a stab wound, like the first stab wound. 
Um, so it's very, it's like a funny, like I feel like you're getting assaulted on all sides in a way because now I have to sit and explain a lot of things to people who didn't realize that we've all been experiencing racism for our entire lives. No, I didn't. <laughs> like the sentiment was, isn't new. I, I feel like it would be frustrating to that, just see the outrage, right, in the moment where people are just having the, the awareness. But it's good that they're having I'm it. Happy, I'm happy that... You're happy that, that they're doing it. I'm happy it's happening, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's just, I think it's, it's important to remember that it's just different, right? Like, the, the experience that you're having, not you, but... You know, no, no, that's, va- that's valid. Like, the, the experience that I'm <laughs> having... Is, is just different from the one that every other minority in the country has experienced their entire lives. Um, like you can, you can be mad about it, um, topically, you can feel really like you can, you can have a very strong sense of injustice and you're definitely on the right side of history if you do. Right. But, but just remember that as much as you're feeling it, that people have been feeling this for as long as they've been alive, as long as their parents have been alive, their grandparents, however many generations they've been in this country. Um, and they've had to not express those feelings of outrage because they get thrown back in their faces. Right. They have I mean, to build it's a defense mechanism, mechanisms and it's a mechanism to keep to sh- them quiet and to survive. shut people up. That's yeah. that's what that phrase means. I'm glad that I'm glad that you know now we are now in a place where I don't have to shut up about it anymore. Like I feel I wouldn't have had this conversation with you a couple of years ago. I would rather have not I would have rather not drawn attention to myself. Um, and I feel and I feel the same way. Right. You know? But now I'm like I Oh, I don't care. <laughs> like, I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm so tired of this. No, and, and, and doing the work, especially like as a woman of color, is like not your job, but the community has always done it. And it can be very, you know, tiresome and draining. But if it, I guess if it makes an inch of progress. Yeah. Hey, look, the, the, the arc is slow, right? I mean, it's, it's long and it's slow, but it trends upwards, right? And, uh, Sometimes, sometimes we take a few step backs. Sometimes, of course, but I think that the the general arc is upwards. And like, if I can, I think as what's also important is like perspective, right? Like, if I, as a person who has directly experienced racism, can still see people who hold beliefs that I do not agree with as I can still see the humanity in them. And my desire is not to say I write you off as a member of my society. My desire is to say I want to know why you believe this. And I do think, I don't think you're a bad person. I think that there's some common ground that we can have. I want to create a way for people to find the common ground. That's all you can really ask for, right? And, and so I, I ask my friends to be angry, right? Do what you have to do. You, it's, you, as you pointed out, it is not on me to have those conversations with people who don't entirely want to hear my perspective on right. things. It's more on you. Um, but, but also be understanding, right? Like you have to come, you have to come at these conversations from a point of, um, you have to find the common ground. You, otherwise it's never going to happen. Otherwise everything, everything that has made us angry in the last few years has been about building up barriers and like pointing out our differences. And that's, if we want anything to go back, if we want anything to go back to a calm, rational narrative, you're going to have to find the humanity in each other in order to have the conversation and move it forward. Right. And it's a process, but even, I mean, to liken it to something that's like far more innocuous, it's like you're in a relationship with a partner and you say something that really hurts them. Um, and maybe you don't know why, you know, it's just like listening to your, listening to your partner, understanding why something like that, like is super offensive or super hurtful. And, 
and then just establishing empathy. But unless you're unless you're willing to take that moment yeah. to think about why why words are harm are harmful and weaponized, you yeah. you can't yeah you can't make. And the key there is that you also have to care about what the other person thinks and how they're feeling. Yeah, um, true. You know, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. With your partner, of <laughs> course, that. you'd hope right. that you do care about how they feel. But um, it's often harder with the dialogues that you're having with strangers who say very hurtful things because it's easy to do on the internet, but don't necessarily care about how it hurts me. So that's that's a harder step, I think, to find the humanity. But it's one that I think, like, if we can do it, I think everybody should try. Because otherwise, we're just like demonizing entire groups of people the same way that they demonize right. us. That's very generous. <laughs> I, just, I don't think there's any other choice, right? Yeah, like, it's true. not like it's not like I don't feel like rage all the time. But you're doing something about it, right? At least you know creatively. We can talk about this now on the podcast. But I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, part of the larger mission of Kalamata and what you're doing with your books is about inclusive inclusivity. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean. Um, when you talk about, you know, what, as what the, the anger that I have felt as an adult, um, as I said, it doesn't do anybody any good. Um, and I think that the only way that things move forward is if people find um, a way to communicate. And Kalamata is a little girl who experiences the world through food, um, through adventures with food. She is very much the author of her own adventures. I think it's very important and inspiring for all children to see a girl who looks like Kalamata doing what she does, um, which is just, in the eyes of a kid, just really cool stuff, you yeah. know? Um, and they wanna be like her, not for any reason other than she does really cool stuff. Um, and, you know, to me, food is the great connector. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that anybody who's ever worked in the industry or works in any way adjacent to food or just loves food, like knows that very deeply. It's why we're drawn to it. Um, and then further to that, everybody's got to eat. Um, we all have our own histories. We all have our own like cultural connection to food. Um, and what's always fascinating when you start to dig into um, all the different things that we love about food is actually how many things are so similar among how, like every cuisine you can imagine. Right. Um, and to me, if you can find a, a common medium for people to see their similarities, um, you're already starting a conversation without pointing out that you're starting a conversation about something very important. Um, it's organic. Um, when people start seeing their similarities, they don't they they absorb them rather than especially making it a point. Especially as kids. Especially as children, exactly. Rather than they see those first, rather than seeing the differences, um, and that's really important, right? Like, imagine if we raised a generation of kids who thought that dal was as normal as oatmeal. Um, and wanted to trade you for it. And wanted to trade me for it, you know? And I think that that's pretty, I'm not going to say it's easy to do, but I think it might be kind of easy to do if we just introduce it early enough and if people are open to the idea of stop, like, stop introducing things as othered right away. Just make it as normal as anything else to eat the food of other people and you'll be there. Yeah. No, and my niece and my nephew like are leap, leaps and bounds ahead of where I was as a, as a kid just because I lived like in a cloistered place. My mom made French food and Italian food and Mexican food. We had a large Mexican population. I was exposed to a little Filipino food. I didn't eat Indian food though until college. <laughs> and I, you know, and Israeli food until college, uh, sushi until college. So like the European canon I had, you know, we were eating 
um, escargot and uh, like fancy, fancy stuff. Yeah, it was adventurous. But if it if it wasn't French or Spanish or Mexican, that was that was it. But my niece nephew were eating Thai food everything, and Indian yeah. food. They're eating everything. I mean, and they don't like everything because they're you don't have to picky, like everything. picky eaters. But it's not it's not weird, right? You know, it's that sense of like I think what's really important for kids is that you, as you just said, like you don't have to like everything, but you should try everything. And if we can find a way to frame um, trying things as the cool part of it, like make trying something into the adventure. Why? Because adventures are cool, and everyone wants to go on one. So tell, tell me about some of Kalamata's adventures. Sure. So um, Kalamata basically is inspired by the stories of other people. Um, so far, all of the books have been based on chefs, and a chef comes over um, to visit Kalamata, and they, he or she will tell a story of his or her own childhood, um, and Kalamata is inspired by that story to go on a food adventure of her own. Um, so she believes that her kitchen table is magical, um, and with the chef and al dente, they go into the kitchen table and they're transported in Kalamata's imagination to um, a place that Kalamata wants to go. And they cook something together, they make something, they go on an adventure together, um, and then they return to her own kitchen and she wants to share it with her mama. Um, and so it's, it's a relatively similar story arc every time with a different uh, chef from a different background. Um, who have you worked with so far? Well, our very first chef was Ilma Lopez. I love Ilma. Who, everybody loves Ilma. She's so, so incredibly talented, such a delightful human being. How did you also. meet Ilma? Well, my business partner, Derek Wallace, um, okay. is actually from the, from the area. Um, and he knew her uh, from, he's like a professional Ooh. guest, honestly. Like he's like, he's so into the food industry, but he's never worked in the food industry because he's just, he's like the dream guest <laughs> for every person who's ever worked in a restaurant. Okay. Um, so he's super into, like he's, he eats everywhere with his family, with his uh, five-year-old kid, okay. Henry. Um, so that's, oh, it's just like a huge part of his life. And so he got connected with Ilma there. And then it turns out that like, I'm also connected with Ilma because she used to work at La Bernadette and she's friends with Jamilka who's my former chef. Right. So, I didn't know yeah, there was a Jamilka connection, too. Okay. Of course there was. Always. Um, yeah. And then, um, so loved her. Uh, then we worked with Trevitt Hooper, mm -hmm. um, also like this incredibly talented chef from Pittsburgh, one of my first great inspirations in the Pittsburgh food scene for his dedication to, um, w b like before it was cool, farm-to-table restaurants. And defining what um, what Pittsburgh food means yeah. is a thing that he does that like I don't think a lot of other people think about, because yeah. he's drawing from... Quaker roots and um, industrial. Yeah, he's th he thinks about the entire picture of the history Big of the picture, city for sure. And then present. Ugh, I love his. Yeah, food. I love his food. It's so honest. Um, it's so honest. It's such a good representation of of him as a person and what he sees his community as. So, um, you know, really very like inspirational for me to work with him too. Um, and then most recently, our third book was featuring Chef Eric Repair. Um, kind of a big deal. Yeah, he's, he's pretty amazing, I have to say. Like, I mean, and, and what was really exciting about working with Chef, of course, he's my boss um, at La Vernadon. Um, and of course, everybody who knows of him admires him for being, you know, one of the world's best chefs. Um, and, you know, obviously incredibly successful as a chef, as a, as a business owner. Um, it was so exciting to me and so emotional, really, to get to share this other side of him, which was the side of Eric Repair as a father. Um, his story is about an experience that he had with his own son, Adrian. Um, and so it was just really like, 
I had this like amazing moment when I was doing the interview with him when I was like, oh my God, like everybody knows who you are, but they don't know this side. Like you're a dad who is trying to feed his kid in a creative way, just like every other every parent. Other parent. Yeah, I, I admit that I like don't think I, the parent and Eric or Para do not like it doesn't synthesize in my brain. But there it is, and it's yeah. such a beautiful story, and it was so you know genuinely connective. I think um, it resonated immediately with me. I don't even have a kid, um, but uh, I was a kid who was transported by food adventures, and like to see how he put that effort in with his child in a way in an activity that like any parent can emulate in their their own homes like it's very very relatable and it's very real um and so that's really the the idea behind featuring these people is that everybody has a great food memory to share um in the case of chefs they're often the you know they they're moments that were often so poignant in their lives that they drove them into the industries that they're in right now so i want you know the point of these stories was to pull out those memories to share with other people because i think that they're really inspirational um they they all show such great inspirational leadership qualities through those stories like something that was so some from a, such a humble um from from their childhood shaped who they are as adults, as business leaders, as heroes uh, to a lot of people. And, you know, that's that's part of what we want to share. And can you tell me who's next or no? No. Ah, <laughs> damn it. I can't. But we have so many really exciting things um, coming up. Like we, we are planning um, a subscription kit, um, oh, which rad. is really great. Yeah, I mean, people ask us, like, how can we interact with this brand more? Like, books are, <laughs> books are really hard to put out quickly and it's like kind of incredible that we've had three in a year Mm -hmm. um so uh we thought what if we could do something um every other month to as a mailer just to like keep people excited and like give another like activity based thing for them to interact with so we're launching these subscription uh stories um where everyone will feature a story about a chef but these stories unlike the books are very activity based so okay. every almost every other line will have an activity tied into the storyline. Um, in the first one, we have a story about chef repair in a farmer's market, and they want to search for the ingredients for ratatouille. Okay. So there's a recipe at the end, of course, as one activity, but throughout, you know, there's um, word searches. The ingredients list is a scavenger hunt for the grocery store, farmer's market, wherever you're shopping, um, things like that. So it's just, you know, there's fun stuff on the way. We want to see it developed into a media property. Um, yeah. That's like, it sounds so fun, but in my head, from like a production standpoint, I'm like, that's so much work. <laughs> it is, it but is. you know what? It's the most, it's the busiest I've ever been, and it's the most, I've never felt so like fulfilled and happy doing yeah? this work. Yeah. How, and you have, but you have so many other things going on. So we talked about <laughs> before we started recording, no big deal. You're studying for exams, you're working 30 hours a week at La Bernadette. Um, well, that's part-time. That's part-time. Yeah, I, I'm not there all the time anymore. I used to be there a lot more. <laughs> and you are planning a wedding. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or your sounds like your mom is planning a wedding. My mom has a lot to do with the wedding, <laughs> yeah, which I'm fine with. Um, and then endless work on Kalamata. Yeah. Because <laughs> I feel like this idea I have of, like a, of a children's book author is is very much this quaint like librarian type who loves children and um, is it like you know writing in a quiet space in their home and you are running like a thousand miles an hour 
Yeah, I mean, I really like that image too. And maybe like I wish part of my life could be like sitting in a beautiful chair in a sunlit room, mm-hmm. like with a mug of tea. No, I mean, there's some of that. But I mean, Calvin's Kitchen is much bigger than um, than the books. books, right? So it's a it's a whole brand. It's an adventure brand. We do restaurant guides as well. Um, you know, we we want Kalamata to be the character that people associate with food adventures, okay. uh, and so we want her to live in every space that we can. Um, that means uh, that means, of course, children have to become familiar with the character through the books. That's what the books are for, um, so kids can get to know Kalamata, and then but Kalamata can live in a lot of different spaces. You know. Okay. This is a this is a brand that um, really is fulfilling an adult need. Um, people are trying to find a way to connect their children to the world. Um, we're giving them the tools to do so. Not guaranteeing anything, right? I'm not going to guarantee that your kid's going to love everything they eat or try everything that Kalamata tries. This is just another tool in a parent's um, arsenal of tools <laughs> that every parent has to try and get their kid to um, learn about the world. Um, try new foods, potentially make healthier eating choices for themselves. Um, just just trying to help that along. And tell me, so you have a you have a restaurant guide? Is that like kid-friendly oh, restaurants? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have our taste bud travel guide. Um, and it we are currently live in 15 cities with plans to be live in way more very soon. Okay. Um, and basically it's like if you, when, when you and I travel, right, we call up our food friends in different cities and we're like, where do I got to go? And they give us that list and we hit those spots. Um, this is a guide of those spots, but for people, like With for children. families. Yeah. And, you know, the primary goal of all of, like, of, of the, the places that we have listed are that they have to treat the kid like a VIP, right? Like their experience has to be as important as the adult experience. That's really, really important to us. Um, and we are trying to highlight places where... Um, you know, they don't necessarily have a kid's menu, but there's stuff on the menu that would appeal to a child if it's just framed the right way. I, I, I know from all of my friends who have kids and from my business partner um, uh, that it's really tough to A, travel with kids and B, eat out with kids. And so I know that a lot of my restaurant friends will be like, I don't want to be the person that brings my kid to this restaurant that I really want to eat at because I'm afraid of how other people are going to see Beauty, me. Like, yeah. They're, they're not going to like that my kid's here. And we're here to tell you that we have spoken to these restaurants and they love having families in and they wish that more people knew that. Okay. So I have one to add are. I have one to add to your list. Yeah, it's not please on do. there. Uh, Keens Steakhouse. I don't think Keens is on there. So I, I took my niece. Yeah. She visited me for the week in New York and she's ten. And we split Chateau Brown for two. She wanted cheese on her baked potato, which they obliged. Uh, we have mushrooms. I had martinis. She did not. Uh, she had water. But no, they they flirted with her. They asked if it was okay if we had two spoons for the Sunday in case she didn't want to share with me. Right. It was the service was perfect, and it was one of the most magical meals I've had in a long time. It's so important. And she loves steak. Yeah. And she has no idea like that it's a restaurant like full of dudes and businessmen, and yeah. she just. Now she just thinks that Keynes exists for her. <laughs> hey, that's amazing. Like, is it, don't, like, I wish that I thought that a lot of restaurants existed for me. I know very well they don't, but um, it's so cool. It's so important for kids to be exposed that way. I think that, um, you know, we have, we have restaurants of every range of the price spectrum mm-hmm. and fancy spectrum on there because obviously not everybody has the same, everybody has different limitations when it right. comes to eating out. Um, and, 
you know, there's something, there really is something for everybody. And really the point of all of them is what I said before, is they just have to make the kids' experience as important as their adult patrons. Um, it's not that hard to do. And, you know, one, I'll call out a specific restaurant in Pittsburgh, actually, um, Superior Motors, which was mm-hmm. written up as one of the best restaurant destinations in America and Time Magazine and, and every, like every publication you can imagine. Um, and you wouldn't initially, it's a place that a lot of people wouldn't initially look at the menu and go, yeah, sure, I'm going to take my... I'm, I'm going to take my six-year-old here. But Chef has two kids. But Chef has two kids. Yeah. Um, and Kevin, hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, and his general manager is also incredible. And they called, or he called me, um, uh, you know, a couple weeks after we did our, our Pittsburgh restaurant guide. And he was like, okay, I have to tell you something. Like, somebody made a reservation and they said, we're one of Comet's taste buds. Yes. And I didn't, I didn't really know what to do. So let me just tell you what I did. And I was like, oh, no. What, what is he going to say? Like, what? <laughs> and honestly, he said that he went over to the table. He, wel- he, he, he made sure to welcome the child first, who was absolutely tickled. She pulled out her membership card, um, which anyone can get from our website, by the way, for free. Um, she pulled out her membership card. She's like, I'm a taste bud. So, you know, and I'm really excited to be here. And then, you know, he walked her through the menu she he made sure to like point out what he thought Kalamata might like. I mean, the, he just did such a great job of that. And he said, I he said it was just so much fun, right? Like it was fun to have them there. It was a different demographic. Um, they want to welcome more people like that in, and we want to tell parents it's okay for you to take your kids right, there. Right, that's special. Yeah, they learn how to eat like adults and have conversations yeah. and like experience restaurants and feel special. You know, feel we special. we feel special when we eat out. Why shouldn't they? We're trying to get everybody on board, right? This is, it's such an, it gives such an opportunity to, for communication and for family time when, you know, like it gives you an opportunity to take advantage of that time um, in a way that I don't know that everybody knows how to do because I don't know that everybody grew up around that or right. like, you know, has like just organically knows how to do it. And it's just, we're just trying to help. Like this, this is part of what made my childhood really magical even in the dark times was that I had this like incredible home space to come home to my house always smelled really good I always went to bed like full and happy with delicious food I was transported by all the different things that my mom cooked Um, food was a center of our world when we went out like when we traveled it was every itinerary was set around where we were eating and like I know how lucky I am and if I could share a small part of that with this generation through Kalamata and with their parents. Right. Like, I, what more can you want, man? It's a, it's a good, happy feeling. Uh, do you um, foresee any casserole-themed adventures for Kalamata? I don't rule anything out. Okay. You know? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing is off the table. It's like little baby Carola-fed child goes and has a magical experience with tuna, tuna noodle casserole. Hey, it was memorable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope. Um, I think it's about lunchtime. I'm so excited. I hope. I we're gonna take a quick break, pull the curried chicken something <laughs> cups, whatever they are, out of the oven, and we're gonna eat in just a second. But I am. Thank you for sharing and being vulnerable and like talking about this topic. And um, you know, I try to keep it light on the cream of Caroline. But uh, like you said, food is food is an opportunity for us all to you know, come together and to talk about different, not necessarily talking about differences with food, but to, to feel like we're all a part of like the same like humanity. Cause That's right. Because we, we are. Because we are. And I drop a little <clears throat> curry. 
into my casserole today. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to um, slam your taste buds, but we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. I'm, yes. All right. Let's get to lunch. All right. But first, I'd like to bring you the second installment of Casserole Reviews by Matt Renskers. Taco Stuffed Peppers, recipe by Kieran Pugh. You can get this guy online here at allrecipes.com. I uh, printed out my notes for you here. Uh, ingredients. It's one pound of ground beef, one ounce package of taco seasoning. You're going to need two cups of water. Uh, it's one eight ounce box of Mexican rice mix. Uh, a tablespoon of butter, though uh, if you know Karen, she likes two tablespoons of butter. You're gonna need about four bell peppers and pull those seeds out. Man, they really get stuck in the teeth. You need one eight ounce bottle of spicy ranch dressing. Kraft is my favorite kind. One eight ounce package of shredded Mexican cheese blend. I like a blend, you know, because then you don't gotta buy all the cheeses. They're just all together. Directions here. You're gonna heat a large skillet over medium-high heat. You're gonna cook and stir beef in the hot skillet until browned, uh, generally a little crumbly. It's gonna be about five to seven minutes on that guy. You're gonna drain and discard the grease, and then you can mix in the taco seasoning after. Once that guy's good and warm, why don't you combine the water, the rice mix, and the butter in a saucepan, and you're gonna bring that guy to a boil, you know, just about a minute. You should cover the saucepan, though. Reduce heat to low and cook until water is absorbed, which is about 25 minutes. And then you can mix the ground beef into that rice mixture. And while that guy's going, why don't you bring a pot of water to a boil and cook those green bell peppers until slightly softened with about five minutes and then drain those guys. Once all completed, why don't you fill each bell pepper with the beef rice mixture. You can then arrange the bell peppers in a bacon dish, cover them in the ranch dressing. I mean, just cover it and then uh, put some Mexican cheese blend on top. You pop that guy in and you bake in a preheated oven until the peppers are tender and you know, the cheese is melty, which is about 45 to 50 minutes or one episode of my stories. Reviews. Oh, here comes one from Pretat35. Uh, Pretat writes, it turned out really well considering there's no specified temp to preheat and cook at, so I did 375 for 4 5 minutes. The cheese was crusty and almost burnt, so I would recommend 350 and check in. Oh my god, Pretat35, you're right, I did not include cook temp. Gosh, silly me, I have one glass of Pinot Grige and you just forget the most important details. Lunch is served. Okay. Okay, all right, we're live. Um, I am gonna make you do one thing before you eat. Okay. Uh, I was reviewing uh, Kalamata Kitchen's um, website. Yeah. And you have to take the pledge. Yeah. Uh, before you eat, because I heard through the grapevine from your <clears throat> mouth if you said you're not like the biggest mayonnaise fan. There's so much mayonnaise in this. <laughs> so, oh, it's not that I'm not a fan. I just like don't eat it that much. So sometimes like my stomach isn't sure if it's a fan. But yeah, no, I, I, I said. Do you know the pledge by heart? Yeah. All right. So will you pl- will you pledge for us? I promise to keep my mind open and my fork ready. 
to try each new food at least two times and share what's on my plate when someone doesn't have enough. Okay, great. <laughs> I thought that was really fun. Hey. Um, so yeah, this Following is... your casserole etiquette, by the way. Uh, no, there's no, there's no etiquette okay. when it comes to casserole. I didn't even check to see if it's hot in the middle. It's all cooked, though. Okay. It feels like it. Yeah, we're, we're at least warm. We're there. Great. Um, so like I said, this is mostly just like mayonnaise, like hot chicken salad with a pepper. And then the Barta is uh, a Mata Joffrey recipe, which is uh, from her World Vegetarian Cookbook, which I feel like is Kalamata for adults. It's like every time I get, oh, yeah. every time I get a veggie and I don't know what to do with it, she's like, here's a recipe from Haiti and Trinidad and Turkey. And it's just, she's been kind of my... Bible for, for oh, yeah. cooking veggies, especially. I think she's everybody's Bible for, for Indian food and for, yeah, for like everything, actually. Okay. It's delicious. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's really good. Um, as I mentioned, the curry powder is coming from yeah. Clusians, which is my favorite grocery store, yeah. but... The curry powder is definitely British. Okay, which I, <laughs> I, I should have known. Maybe I know that somewhere deep in my... So tell... So why is it, how is it British? Do they just come and mix spices and like take it? Yeah, it's like a real involved process to make the actual spice blends for most uh, mm-hmm. Indian food. So the British at a certain point developed a taste for Indian food, probably while they were colonizing it and um, you know pillaging it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, yeah developed curry powder to sort of mimic the things that they liked about Indian flavors, but not really... Uh, not everything. Not everything. That makes a lot of sense because this is uh, <clears throat> titled Imperial Curry Blend. Yeah, now that uh-huh. makes sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> Shit. Imperial Curry Blend, huh? Cool. <laughs> Words matter? Is that, is that the theme? Yeah. The theme of the episode? Actually, I think that, that'll be the theme of the episode. Words, <laughs> words matter in, in cur- Imperial Curry. That's fine, man. I think every, like... Every member of the Indian diaspora at some point goes, mm-hmm. goes through like a weird phase of anguophilia, and then you're like, wait, that's like Stockholm syndrome, right? And, and um, it's fine. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I actually like curry powder. Okay, good. But it's not Indian. <laughs> Lunch was definitely not Indian. I would say that it is all American with a whiff. British colonialism but I do know that when you sit down and share a meal with someone it's always an opportunity to learn. That's what Cream of Caroline and Kalamata's Kitchen are all about. To buy Sarah's books or to get your Taste Buds membership card visit kalamataskitchen.com and whether you're cooking for your kids, friends, families, or strangers keep it creamy. Mm-hmm.